This is the Ed Milet Show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I'm so excited to have this lady here with me. I'm fascinated by her work and uh, because the applications in so many different areas of my own life and I believe for the audience today. She's got a new book out called Peak Mind. She's a neuroscientist, professor of psychology at University of Miami, and I already like her. Amishi Ja, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So good. So, I have so many things I want to ask you, and I'm going to cram it into one hour. So, <laughs> first things first, there's this fallacy, evidently, that we use only a percentage of our brain. There's, you know, your 10% of your brain, 32% of your brain. People love to throw these statistics around. Yeah. But as I'm prepping and look, learning about your work, you say not true at all. Oh, not true at all. Okay, tell me. No way. I mean, the brain takes up so much of our metabolic energy. Nothing is wasted. Mm. And the real, the way to think about the brain is, is as a unit. Usually we think about bits and pieces and communication between those bits and pieces, but it's really the, the configuration of the whole thing, just like a team. Mm. So you'd never say that, you know, if you have ever, all the players on the team, some may be more active than others, but you don't say the whole team's not playing the game. Mm. Same idea with the brain. It's entirely used. Okay. And some parts may be actively suppressed and other parts may be actually really activated. Do highly performing people have some functionality in their brain or a presence about them that people that don't function at that same level have? Like what separates them? Oh Could yeah. you say peak mind, what does that mean? To me, a peak mind has to do with the area that I actually specialize in, attention. Okay. So a peak mind is a mind that has full access to its attentional resources. Hmm. Nothing is lost or hidden. And by the way, does, that doesn't always mean you're focused. Okay. It means that you know exactly in a moment to moment context where your attention is even if it's off-leash doing whatever the heck it wants to do. Okay, so I, so attention means I'm aware I'm no longer focused on the task at hand, the initial task, and that's still being in full attention? Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to understand that. Yeah, yeah, so okay. attention is this complex, multifaceted system, and it really developed over the course of evolution because we've got a very big problem. The brain had a very big problem, okay. which is that, and we can see it if we just look around right now, there's so much information available to it, yeah. it cannot possibly process all of it. Okay. So attention provides a solution to prioritize a subset of the information and then hone in on it to get fuller access. So we actually make sense of the world by sampling different pieces of it to kind of put together the entirety. Okay, so, oh, here we go. This is already <laughs> getting good. So I went right into the content without even positioning things because I'm so fascinated. But what, as you can now tell yeah. everybody, we're gonna talk today about mindfulness an awful lot. And we're going to talk today about getting better at getting your attention focused. I use the word focus. You yeah. use a different word. But so I'm watching one of your TED Talks. And by the way, I want to encourage everybody to go watch them. They're, this one, I, the one I watched is awesome. At one point in the talk, you say, well, I basically got eight minutes left. You will listen to about 50% of what I'm about to say. Yep. And I thought to myself, wow, the application of missing 50% of something, maybe in listening to a talk, okay, whatever. But what's that mean for an athlete who's in a five round UFC fight? What's it mean for a surgeon who's going to operate on someone's body? What's it operate for a soldier or a law enforcement person to lose attention for that percentage of time? So that's actually accurate that the average person, is, their attention is there 50% of the time? Yeah. I okay. mean, that's study after study after study. Okay. And what I mean by that is, and some of these studies are really interesting the way that they're done, and they're done in a very rudimentary way. We've gotten more and more sophisticated, but the initial studies, all that happened was, you said, okay, you know, Ed, will you sign up for my study? Yes. I'm going to text you any time of day during waking hours. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And the questions would be something like, what are you doing right now? And you get a little list of options, like reading a book, talking to a person, whatever those options are, you click. And then the second question is, where is your attention right now? Is it on the task you're doing or somewhere else? Mm. And that kind of experience sampling suggested 50%. Gosh. But then we brought it into the lab and we had people do tasks that are attentionally demanding. And even then, even though they know they're there to do a task, 50%. Mm. You pay people to say, don't get distracted, still. Very high percentage they of time. still get distracted. It's just the nature of the mind. And I think knowing that can be very empowering in some sense. Is there such a thing as multitasking or is that a fallacy? In other words, can the brain do more than one thing at one time? Great question. I'm so glad <laughs> you asked that. So. 
If more than one thing is intentionally demanding, you cannot do more, more than one thing at one time. Okay. The term multitasking is actually a myth. Okay. The correct term would be task switching. Task switching. Yes, so what you're doing, and this is actually, frankly, one of the most exhausting things you can do to your brain, okay. is engage your attention and then have to disengage it, move it to the next thing, come back, and move it over and over again. Really? Yeah. Okay. And when we ask, when, when we tell people this, you know, it's, people always get it, like, yeah, it takes me a while to get back into the thing I was doing. So don't do that to yourselves is <laughs> my main, like, guidance for people. Okay. Don't have your alerts on when you're trying to actually do deep work and focus hmm. because you're disadvantaging your ability to actually do the task that you're trying to do. I mean, if already the baseline is 50%, yeah. and now you've got to deal with things pulling you away, hmm. the chances of it actually being successful are even reduced more. So what's the solution then? In other words, you, you talk a great deal about mindfulness. Why don't we position that? I'm pretty familiar, I would say, that yeah. I've practiced mindfulness for a while, but not on the level and to the extent, nor with some of the exercises that you recommend. So is the solution in your, is a generic answer mindfulness for you? And then why don't you elaborate on what that actually means? Sure. I mean, I think that, first of all, I'll just tell you my personal bias, right? So yeah. coming into this, I mean, you can see me, I'm an Indian woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The term meditation or mindfulness meditation, I mean, these were not things that I was unfamiliar with growing sure, up, sure. but I kind of didn't want anything to do with it. I was a true skeptic. In fact, I thought it was not a serious enterprise and had other reasons for not wanting to go in the direction of practicing meditation at all okay. because of some sexist aspects of the culture, et cetera. I was like, no, no, not for me. So my, my topic, my expertise is in the brain science of attention. That's what I studied. And it was just a total life circumstances that even opened me up to the possibility of mindfulness entering okay. my lab's work. So I just want to frame that. That it's interesting. You know, it's very hard for people to know, especially when I walk on a mil into military bases. They usually think I'm the mindfulness lady, yeah. and then the neuroscientist is the other person that's with me. And I'm like, no, nope, flip that. Well, what's interesting, not to interrupt you, but that's what I thought originally. So when the opportunity to speak <laughs> with you was presented to me, I went, okay, I've had some meditation people yeah. on before. I'm actually more interested in the science part of it. Right, right. Then I look into you, and I'm like, oh, hold on a second here. Right. This is a person who comes from the scientific perspective. She's a neuroscientist. Now we're talking about mindfulness. Yeah, so that's exactly. really interesting. So, you know, it's not something, and it was probably two or three years into me having my own lab that it entered my lab's landscape. And it really came because I was at a crossroads in my personal life. I was, you know, a young child at that point. I was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And everything was sort of on paper and to the external world exactly as I'd wanted it, right? I got this dream job. I have a beautiful uh, family. And mm -hmm. we just bought a hundred year old fixer upper in West Philly and Whoa. we're renovating it. And like everything was great. And like the way that I had planned for it to be, but I had a real wake up call. There were two things that happened that really were like, uh, something's up. First, I lost feeling in my teeth from grinding. That was odd. And then one night I was reading to my son and, um, mm. <laughs> had no idea what I was reading in the book. Like he mm. asked me, it was like maybe not even three years old. He stopped, put his little hand on the book and like looks up like, what do we, you know, what does this word mean? And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm reading. And Whoa. it was this kind of deep feeling of my goodness, I am not here at all. I am not paying attention to my life. Mm. And if this is happening now and he's this tiny, like mm. how is it gonna flow as he gets older and things as you know, as you've yes. got teenagers, things get more complicated. Yeah. So anyway, just to say that, I became, like I was on a hunt. I study attention, I'm an expert in this. Okay, let me just read something about how to fix this thing. Like yeah. I'm distracted, how do I fix it? Nothing in my field would guide me okay. to what to do. And so we tried a lot of different things, even in the lab, because it sort of paralleled what the lab was studying at that time of we knew attention can be vulnerable to things like stress and threat, et cetera, but we didn't have any solutions there. Yeah. So anyway, so it ended up, just to give you a sense of why mindfulness entered That's the lab. Wonderful. yeah. I um, was at a, a seminar, actually. This was about early 2000s, so mindfulness was not a term. Like, I would have never thought at that point, 2021, I'd be talking to somebody that would say, oh yeah, I, I practice mindfulness. Yeah. Like, definitely not mm -hmm. something I thought would happen. But this colleague of mine, a, a very eminent neuroscientist who, who studies something called affective neuroscience, the neuroscience of emotion, and he presented, he was like at the front of this large lecture hall, and he presented like two brain images on the screen. A very positive looking brain, mm -hmm. meaning he had induced people while they're in the scanner to feel in a positive mood. Okay. And then a negative brain. And, um, mm. 
I'm like, at the end of the lecture, I raised my hand. I was like, okay, how do you get that brain to look like that brain? You know, like kind of just in a, and he was very flippant about it. He's just like, meditation. And I was like, what? I don't think so. Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. Ended up, I talked to him later and he was in a serious uh, initial stages of studies that now we've all probably heard of with adept monastics, monks. Yep. And so it was very intriguing to me. And I was kind of like, oh, but I don't want anything to do with this. This is not serious. And I had my own personal baggage. And I ended up walking into the Penn bookstore and pulled a book off called Meditation for Beginners. And I just said, let me just check it out. It ended up that that book was by one, somebody who's quite dear to me now as a teacher, uh, Jack Cornfield. And Jack- <laughs> um, the book, I know the book. Yeah, and I Jack has thing. a little, it's a little tiny book and has a guided CD. I'm like, okay, look. I'm skeptic, I'm a skeptic, but I'm just gonna try it. I'm just gonna try it. It's like 10, 15, 20 minute practices. So I committed to it. And what I realized as it was happening, as I was going through this day after day, and probably about a month or so in, I'm like, oh, this thing is entirely, the instructions are plainly about attention. And this thing is transforming the way that I Mm. pay attention. Mm. I felt more embodied. I Mm. felt more aware. I could notice the little grimaces on my son's face or maybe a concerned look in my spouse's eyes. Like mm. just everything became crystal clear and more alive to me. And none of the stresses had changed. I mean, the pressures of my life were the same, but I was more, I felt more capable, really more at my peak. How quickly? About four to six weeks. That's what it was for me too, which I really amazing that you're saying this is that um, I had a somewhat similar experience where I, you know, sort of the financial, well-being of my life it turned around i'm living on the ocean you know i've got all these things in my life that i wanted and i just struggled with finding some peace mm. i struggled with being present um clarity of thought and actually what i felt like too for me was like i had stopped growing emotionally psychologically and mentally like mm. i would i was still producing more external results but there was just a part of me that wasn't expanding mm. and maybe i was even regressing i grabbed the exact same book Really? Yeah, that's what's ironic about it. When you said that, I wanted to make sure it was the same author before I jumped in. I oh grabbed, my goodness. I know, it's amazing. I grabbed oh. the exact same book. But, but as we're talking, I realized even recently, maybe I've not stayed as dedicated to some of those practices as I could. So being with you has sort of inspired oh, me yeah. to do it. A lot of times, you know, just I'm anticipating, people may be like, okay, I've heard of mindfulness, I'll even do it. But I want to deepen the understanding. Please. And maybe even, it might even actually motivate you to kind of try a little yeah. bit more regularly. Yeah of what attention is and why it ended up being such an interesting solution for us to bring it into the lab. Because after this happened, to kind of get back to to where I was in my journey, after this happened, I was like, okay, this is pretty interesting, but I'm one person. This is an anecdotal self-study. So if this is for real, then let's put it to the test in the most rigorous way possible. And hey, I happen to have all the tools of studying attention. I can actually bring this to the lab and we can do this seriously. So that summer, like a few months after I I started this whole journey, I wrote my first grant to investigate this and put really literally like, if this has any chance of actually being real, it will have to really be there or mm-hmm. in order for us to see it or else it'll just not show up mm-hmm. you know with this kind of randomized controlled trials and having ensuring that we're very clear about the protocols etc so anyway so um i just wanted to mention that that yeah. this is this entered the lab because i was curious but i was very open to the pa- fact that it could be anecdotal it could be just you it could be right? just me because yep. i would love to share a practice right. with you and you'll find it very familiar yeah. since you've been practicing mindfulness But the reason that I was willing to write the grant, and I think the reason I've been able to get grant after grant is because it truly taps into these aspects of attention that the brain science says says exist. But currently, at least at the moment that I started this work, there was really no insight into how to train each of these brain systems. Mm. So it's like, we know they exist, we know they're vulnerable. The piece that I wanted to actually explore is, is it trainable? Yes. So, because that's when, yep. as, as you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's where the expansion, the growth can happen. Right. So anyway, so let's just, I mean, I love the question that you asked me regarding attention and you said the term focus. Yeah. But that actually is just one part of the attention okay. landscape. So, this is important to know before an exercise so we know what we're actually working on. So yeah. Exactly. That's okay. what I was thinking. I think that it helped, it helped me yep. understand why it would be worth doing this what seemingly is a very weird thing to do with sit quietly and pay attention to your breath, which we'll break it down, but still, that's essentially what it's gonna come to. Um, Okay, so just one of the things I like to do because it helps me explain and understand even how how these systems work. And we already talked broadly that 
attention is solving a problem for the brain. It doesn't exist for no reason. It, it exists to emphasize certain aspects of mm -hmm. our experience. And the metaphor I like to use that really is tied to the term you said, focus, is of a flashlight, right? So that's the metaphor. I, okay. I, so you, what, if you're in a darkened path, you know, mm -hmm. you have this beautiful ocean view here, you wanna go for a little walk in the evening, you might take a flashlight with you. Okay. Why? Because wherever it is that that flashlight is pointing, you're gonna get privileged access to really that good. information. Yeah. Okay. So same thing with attention. When we attend to something, like right now, if I'm looking at your face, right. I'm getting granular information regarding mm -hmm. your face. And everything else is sort of becoming a fu fuzzy in the same way that wherever we point that flashlight, everything else is darkened around it. Mm -hmm. Same idea. And that's a very active process that the brain is doing. The brain is enhancing the neural activity of the part of space I'm focusing on and actively suppressing everything else yeah, around it. Yeah, that's good. So that part is, is, I think most people can understand the term focus is a very common thing. Mm -hmm. The cool thing about this flashlight though is it's not only about the external environment, but it's about the internal environment as well. Hmm. So if I say, um, think about what you had for dinner last night. Mm -hmm. Can you do that? I can. You can do that, right? Yes. So what happened in that moment? Before I said that, probably it was not on your mind. Oh, so good. <laughs> right? Oh, so good. So okay. you, you had it come to mind in your memory, and then basically you sh were shining the flashlight on the memory, wow. and all of a sudden it's in your conscious experience. So think about the power of this focusing capacity. I mean, I, I do refer to it as a type of fuel because we need it to have a train of thought. We need it to experience emotion and regulate emotion. Mm -hmm. And we certainly need it to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. But still, that's only part of the puzzle. But I hope that, that that at least the flashlight thing makes sense. That isn't, I'll never forget that. <laughs> well, I'll never forget that as long as I continue to practice mindfulness. <laughs> if I don't, potentially I will forget that. But okay, so <laughs> I won't forget that. What an unbelievable analogy because you made me pull a visual, a file up almost in my brain that was suppressed. It was the one that went to the background. Yeah, And once exactly. we shine the light on it, this is so good. Okay, so now that we're at this space, so I'm obviously you now have proven scientifically that this is trainable, expandable, almost like a muscle and a bicep that if it's trained regularly, it can become stronger and grow. Yeah. So if I'm in that, I know when most of my audience knows if I want to go to a gym and I want to build my bicep, they kind of have a general idea. Here's uh, an array of exercises you can do to build that. Correct. What is one of them that we can do to build oh, I'm gonna, this? You're going to be mad because I'm going to say, wait, hold on, but there's more. I feel like I'm <laughs> trying to send you Ginsu knives or something. But because it's really like the body and you know that if you only work certain muscle groups, there's others that will atrophy. Yes. And there is a cross training aspect to this. Wow. So I want to make sure we cover Very the good. other aspects Let's do it. Well, that's part of the training of yeah. attention, right? Okay. So the focusing is one piece of the puzzle, okay. but attention is this multifaceted component. And there's two other systems that I think are really worth okay. mentioning. The other system is something I call the floodlight. And it really is formally called the alerting system of the brain. It's almost, you could say the exact opposite of the flashlight. Whereas the flashlight is narrow and selective. The floodlight is broad and receptive. Okay. There is nothing you should be privileging. The only thing you're privileging is what is happening right now. So you're privileging time. Hmm. Like right now, in this moment, what is the most important thing? And you know, we use this system all the time. You're driving down the road, you see a flashing yellow light near a construction zone or a weird traffic pattern. You, you know what that feeling is of like broad and receptive. I don't know what weirdness is gonna happen, but I'm here for it because I might need to take action like that and then I'll be able to direct the flashlight where it's needed. But I have to have that preparatory kind of broad receptivity. Okay. So flashlight, floodlight, flashlight, floodlight, right. Both really important. And the third system is actually, and this will sound familiar too. Once I start talking about it, it's actually something called executive control. Okay. And it's, we use that term executive because it really is like the executive of a company. The job of this executive system is as, as a manager mm. to ensure that the goals we have and the behavior we engage in align. Mm. So the, the analogy I use there is, is a juggler. So essentially, all the balls need to be in the air. As a, as a leader in an organization, you know that you're not gonna go in and do every task, but you need to make sure there's a rhythmicity, there's an appropriateness to all the things that are being done. And this juggler basically guides the action of these other systems of the flashlight and the floodlight. So now I think with those three in mind, we can talk about the cross-training aspect of, of one of the practices. Very, very good. Helpful? Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that background because I'm thinking about the, uh, 
for me, when I listen to things, and I know people think differently, I'm constantly thinking of the application. Yeah. So when I hear the too. science or the exercise, <laughs> I know you, that's why, you're, that's why your work's so wonderful. I'm thinking of the application. Right. I'm thinking of people, like for example, when you talk about the floodlight, I'm thinking of people who overuse their flashlight. And those sometimes are people who are good at certain tasks or certain behaviors, but they have an inability to see the room. You got it. They have an inability to see the context of things sometimes. Yeah. And so this floodlight aspect, I'm thinking, what part of those are am I pretty good at? I don't know so much about the juggler part. I think that's probably the part maybe that I struggle with, but I am pretty good, I think, of coming in and being able to that floodlight and seeing the bigger perspective and then narrowing my focus down to what matters. And so the application as you're listening to this is really, really fascinating stuff because you could be, a, you could be unbelievable at focusing in, in certain aspects of what you do in your life, but you're missing the bigger story, the bigger context, the bigger vision. Then there's other people I think who can see the big thing but maybe they, they're yeah, weaker at being able to narrow their focus for the period of time they need to, to engage yeah. with somebody or to be present with them or to persuade them or to knock a putt in the hole or whatever exactly. that it might be. So I that is that. fascinating Yeah, I think me. that's a really great, like connecting the dots. Mm. But the other thing to keep in mind is we need all three systems and they need to be functioning, functioning together fluidly. Yes. Like they don't function at the same time. Right. In fact, technically in the brain, they're, they battle each other. For mm -hmm. prominence so you can't be in both a floodlight and a flashlight mm -hmm. mode and mm -hmm. we know this right so you're immersed in reading something or listening to something somebody walks in the room and says your name you're like it takes you a second mm -hmm. because the floodlight is essentially being dampened down mm -hmm. the receptivity to the environment is dampened down mm -hmm. so i think that the the can i give it, you an example of that just yeah, in sports please, just, please, yeah. because i think the transition between those i'll call them states yes. the transition between those states is something that I think people that perform at a high level have an ability to transition better. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. An NFL quarterback walks up to the line of scrimmage. What they're doing is they're in the floodlight state at that point because the floodlight state is I've got to read the field. I've got to read the defense, right? This is almost like walking into a board meeting, but in a quarterback sense, when I'm working with them, they're walking in, they're surveying the entire field. What's the defense? Where's the linebacker? Is this person blitzing? They're looking at the floodlight. It's their ability to then deduce and make assessments about the floodlight state they're in. And then as the ball snapped, move into the flashlight and hone in on the open wide receiver. That's the application for a quarterback, right? Yeah. And so, and then it's the, the juggling part is pretty obvious of what they have to do during that play. So you should be listening to this or watching this thing about the application in your life as a father, as a mother, as a business person, as an athlete. So I just want to make sure that we're sort of going to application, just giving one example as we do Such it. Such a I mean, it's so cool, the, mm -hmm. the resonance between even the terminology we used when we trained the University of Miami football team, mm -hmm. scan the field eye on the ball <laughs> and you know these are very similar terms to mm. what we were saying and the reason that they should be practicing these mm. these particular practices so absolutely these are things that are relevant i love what you said regarding assess the situation mm. and i want to just say one more thing regarding that yeah. that happens often when we assess right when when i say observe or be receptive to what's happening there's an aspect of that that has to be ooh free of a particular perspective of what you think you're seeing. Okay. So if you come in and you think, oh, I know what this team is going to do, mm -hmm. then you're going to read that field very, you know, the playing field very differently than if you're like, I don't really know what they're going to do. I got to really be able to get all the data of what's going on because I'm not sure. I'll probably figure it out as stuff starts happening of what the other team very is good. attempting to do. But that is a very important aspect because we default into that sort of story making or yes. conceptual elaboration. That Can I ask follow. you about that? Because yeah. now you're really going down a road I love yeah, and that yeah. I'm fascinated by. We have these predisposed belief systems like you just described. We believe when we walk in a room, there's a certain environment or certain treatment, a certain scenario, a certain or our inability to see something also. Right. Does our brain somehow then help reveal to us what it is that we believe most clearly in that environment with that floodlight or that flashlight? The reality I think we have to consider is that in many circumstances, in many high stress, high stakes consequences, we have no idea what the conceptual overlay should be. And it can be quite problematic to assume you do. Okay. And can I give you an example? I, I want it. Yes. Yeah, so I'm this fascinated. is an example actually from a colleague, a, a, a actually a dear now friend who happened to be a, then he was a colonel, he's now a three-star general. And he gave me this example. This is again, in the initial stages of talking about mindfulness and mm -hmm. why it matters. 
because uh, he got it immediately of why, and, and I'll connect the dots back to the, the practice that you asked about. So he's describing this scenario in Afghanistan, actually probably now 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see, no, not 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, okay. right at the beginning of the, of the whole episode there. And they got intelligence that on this mountaintop is a Taliban encampment. Mm-hmm. And their job was to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Basically, there were planes flying above and he was told, you give us the word and we're going to drop a bomb, get rid of these bad guys, right? So so he wanted to, as the leader, and uh, ensure that this is, you know, this is the right thing to do. That was totally the story. All the intelligence had told them that. So they're going up the mountain to actually confront this group of people that they heard were there. Mm -hmm. And ahead of him were a couple of scouts. So he's like behind, they're going up front and, and the scout says, you know, yeah, look, we, we, had, we have seen men, we see young men in this age range. They're standing outside the quarters of where they're staying and all, all looks good. You know, yes, it's exactly what we think it is. And then, and then so the, the, the leader was about to say, yeah, drop, go ahead yep. and drop. Then the next sentence comes in that changed everything. Okay. The soldier said, I see no weapons. Mm. And that was like a, mm-hmm. that's not, that's mm-hmm. not typical. Mm-hmm. And then, every, and then, the, and he said, I see no weapons. I'm just going to go tackle the guy. Like, yeah. and so he runs in, tackles the guy. And then a few seconds later, these angry women come out of the, <laughs> come out of the tents. Like, what are you doing to our family members? Oh my gosh. It was not a Taliban encampment. Thank it was God. a Bedouin tribe that had been coming there for hundreds of years. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. And so the, the, the insight for this military leader was, ah, he had intrinsic mindfulness. He was able to drop the story and see what is. Yes. He saw what wasn't there, which most of us don't do. Yes. So this is what I think, in addition to these attentional aspects, this yep. is what we can get into with mindfulness, because mindfulness is about paying attention to our present moment experience right. without conceptual elaboration, without a story or editorializing it, and without having emotional reactivity to it. Okay, so I want, we're going right there, but I want to go back. You said true and false <laughs> to what I said, yes. and I like knowing where I'm false. That way I'm not false anymore. What was incorrect about what I asked you It there? was not that there was anything incorrect. Okay. If you go into a situation thinking you have a story that's going to guide you, absolutely, 100% you are correct, yep. that attention will be biased in yep. favor of the story. Yes. But that can be not beneficial always. The only part of what I was saying was that it can have consequences. You were painting okay. a beneficial picture, you but that's not the key. Got it, because yeah. I actually teach it in the uh, in the latter, meaning ah, I actually okay, think good. most of the time it's then too Then I take hard. it back. No, no, no. <laughs> well, what I wanted to make sure is that this idea of what we do uh, believe strongly guides our attention in an environment. Oh, 100%. And that's yes. the part that yeah. I don't believe, just to be clear, I think most people aren't wired for it to be to their benefit. I actually think ah, that most yeah. people are wired. So that's what you meant by false. It can be a negative. It can More be than, negative. Maybe yeah. not true or false. It's positive, negative. Right. And the negative I completely agree with is that if I walk into an environment, I always fail. I always find a way to make a mistake. I, You will gravitate towards the environment, the circumstance, the person, the whatever it is. Your flashlight begins to focus towards that if that's totally. your story going in, correct? 100%. So okay, let me just, good. like, maybe maybe I want to, I want to, emphasize how right that is. Okay. That is the power of story and narrative. And that's why we have to be very aware of the narrative that we're telling ourselves because it is guiding perception, it's guiding decision making and it's guiding action. And so you totally got it right. It that is not, that it, biasing component is, th- this is, is important. This is sort of, I, I just love you because this is sort of the basis of what I teach. Yeah. Is that this story guides perception. Now you can prove it with the neuroscience more than I can. Yeah. But so I'm so glad to hear that it wasn't true or false, that it's actually positive oh, yeah. and negative. Because to be really candid with you, I believe that you can learn all the skills of being an entrepreneur or a mother or an athlete or a father. But if you don't begin to take control of the story, of, of your life, of what you believe about yourself, what you believe about what's possible, what you believe about an environment that you really have lost control over your ability to produce the results that you want. And so I'm so I mean, glad you are, you are like, we are extremely in sync. In fact, I have a whole, a whole chapter I, called drop the story. Oh gosh. It's because awesome. it's not just that we should be aware of the story. We have to also have the capacity to drop it. And that is a, that's an extra level of a skill mm. because sometimes having no story allows us. So, so let me back up. Yeah. So great. Being, so great. Being able to understand that you have a story will at least distance you enough so you can reframe the situation. Yeah. I love but your terminology. Being able to drop the story allows you to deframe. 
Mm. And when you deframe, you can build up in a different way. Mm. And that, I think, is at the next level of what we're talking about. It's like truly take in the data without as much, con without any kind of conceptual overlay. That is not typical. We don't do that. That's really interesting. See, I've always thought you better replace that story. Yeah. You're saying that's not, uh, it's not imperative to do that. But you can actually just drop the current story and allow sort of the information to dictate what the story becomes to some give extent. That, give that part more, because oftentimes we'll reframe and then we're in another story. Hmm. But really savor, extend the period of time where you are data gathering. Hmm. And I hear this from, you know, one of the people I talk about in the book is, is a lawyer and he talks about this all the time. I have to be able to get the raw data of the experience mm. or judges, same thing, or in any business context. Mm. If you're not quite sure what's happening, allow the deframing to occur. That will give you better insight into the reframing that then occurs. Do you think someone, gosh, this is, I'm loving this. I actually, we were joking earlier that we wouldn't go three or four hours. We may go a little <laughs> bit longer because I'm absolutely loving this. <laughs> if you've had some success too, that if it doesn't come with a dose of humility, that when you begin to walk into every room and every environment and think you've already figured it out, you already know, this stunts growth as well because you're, what you're saying is it blunts you taking in new data and new information. Correct, correct, you get it, yeah. you totally get it. You are denying yourself better data, more data to inform the decisions that happen. <laughs> so don't do that, don't do that to yourself, right? All right give us the exercise, we've been so, building enough, give us yeah, more. Yeah, okay, so this is like, there's, I'm gonna give you a longer one just to describe the steps yep. and then we'll do a, like one that you can do anytime, all the time. Okay. So this is like a basic mindfulness practice and I call it, again, tied to what we're talking about in the, in the book and attention, mm -hmm. the find your flashlight practice. Great. Because oftentimes it's not that we can't focus, it's that we don't know where we're focusing at any moment. That's true. So the instruction would be, and, and I guide people to kind of ramp up to about 12 minutes a day that our data suggests is beneficial to do this, but to start out, like do 30 seconds of this, commit to that for a few weeks and see how that goes. So the practice is essentially find a quiet, comfortable spot and, and take this time seriously, even if it's 30 seconds or a minute. Sit in an upright, alert posture, like a dignified, you know, if we do it now, it's just like upright, alert, dignified. And first step is just acknowledge, notice, shine the floodlight on your experience that you're breathing right now. Mm. Then what you're gonna do is hone in on something that actually you notice is prominent in your experience of breathing. So do you notice anything that feels prominent, like the coolness of air maybe by your nose or maybe your chest? It's actually the sound I'm making. Okay, amazing. great, yes. yeah, the, the, the sound, that's a great one too. That's where you're gonna hold the point the flashlight. That's your attentional target for this short practice. So direct that flashlight right there. Keep it steady. You can close your eyes if you want to, whatever you choose, just to limit the sensory input. And if it hasn't happened yet, it surely will, your mind will wander. And all you do in that moment is notice it. Ah, the mind has wandered away. Next step, take that flashlight, redirect it back to that same attentional target. And repeat. So it's essentially focus, point that flashlight, notice, use the floodlight, redirect, get the juggler to do its job. Oh my goodness. You know one, can I ask about that? Yeah, please. When I first started this, um, there was like a judgment when I drift away. Oh no, you know it's a saying? total win. But it's, it, it's a win it's moment. It's actually a win because it gives us a chance to redirect the flashlight, yeah. right? This is so important because I used to, I don't know, maybe, you, maybe you're further along than me, but in the beginning I was like, gosh, man, I'm gone this for like 24 seconds and I'm out. But you're actually saying that's actually a gift when we drift away because it allows us to build this flashlight, I'll call it a muscle, so to speak. Yeah, it, absolutely. That we're coming back. That's it's, really it, but good. It's, now I hope it makes sense why I wanted to describe those three systems because we hit all three in this. It does. And I think it's really important to not think of the wandering as a problem. The wandering, remember we started out talking about 50% right. of the time, it's the nature of the mind. I didn't say, Ed, if you happen to be one of those weird people with mind wanders, like us normal people don't have that, you have mind wander. I didn't say that. I said, mm -hmm. when your mind wanders, because it's going to wander Very for sure. Good. Just bring it back. And not doing that with the added story, the added reactivity is so important. You know, I was just thinking of the... Uh 
I do. I did a lot of work when I was younger, and I do now with kids. And mm. I have so many parents almost judge their children for their. He can't stay focused in the classroom. He drifts away. Oh, and I'm just thinking yeah. right now, like, what a breakthrough this might be for some parents who are listening oh, to this to realize that that's actually. Everyone is at 50%. Maybe your kid reveals it more than other kids do. Doesn't right. conceal it as well. Right. Maybe it manifests in talking out loud as opposed to scribbling on a sheet of paper. So it's more yeah. apparent. But this is something that even with, do you believe it? Is there a particular age where you believe a child might be able to begin to build this? I'm calling it building a muscle because everybody can relate yeah. to that. Yeah, this no, practice. I think it, it is. It's practice. It's strengthening. So the first thing to say is that this brain system of attention is one of the slowest to develop. We don't fully develop this capacity till we're about 25. Okay. And one of the reasons is it relies on the frontal lobes, which are the s slowest brain, uh, brain region to develop. develop. So, you know, it does kind of drive me nuts sometimes, and I feel for parents when they're, but when they're not happy that their children aren't paying attention or their response is, pay attention, it's not gonna help at all. Mm. And in fact, understanding that that's the thing that is, is it's your child is not not paying attention because they, don't know that they should often, mm -hmm. is that they don't know where their attention is. Just like we are saying wow, we don't that's know. that's good, that's good. So I think that the thing to really, and, it, and by the way, yes, absolutely, there's a huge enterprise of offering mindfulness training in a ch developmentally appropriate manner to children as, long, as young as preschool. Really? We can do these in very useful ways for children, but what you're having them cultivate is not just focus, 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 it's where are you right now? You know, mm -hmm. where are you? In a friendly, self-supportive way. And is that where you want to be right now? You know, when you talk to yourself in that manner of like, where am I right now? Is that where I want to be? All of a sudden, the world doesn't feel as dire. Like, oh, I'm over here. I think I want to be over there instead. I think that's what I should be doing right now is being over there. It's a different relationship. And if you, the younger that we can get people to start understanding that this is befriending your mind in a way that allows it to be used to your benefit, that's Instead fascinating of being to me. Punitive to yourself. Yeah, yeah. that uh, I'm just thinking. I'm sitting here as a 50 year old man. I've done different forms of meditation, mindfulness. I'm a relatively productive human being, <laughs> and I'm confessing to the audience that oftentimes I'm going 24 seconds, and I'm out of my attention. Where well, my attention has changed rather. So the idea that we're concerned about our eight year old who might have the exact same, or does have the exact same scenario yeah. that I do. I'm just curious, has there been any data? Are kids even more than 50% where their attention moves? Or would you assume that because those frontal lobes aren't as developed? Or is it it's, pretty okay, much the so same? Okay, so here's the tricky part of having assessing that with children, by mm -hmm. the way. What does it take for you to even know if somebody's on task or off task, yeah. right? They have to have the awareness. Yeah. Uh, in something, it's something called meta-awareness. Yep. Awareness or attention to your attention. Mm. That is also a developmentally slow process. So we're getting a fuzzy read on them. I mean, we could take them into the lab and look directly at their performance on tasks. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they, they mind wander a lot. Mm. Uh, their attention can be off often, uh, you know, off task often. But I don't think that's uh, the thing we want to help cultivate, which is the counterintuitive thing. And I, I mean, I refer to it in the book yeah. as like a peak mind pivot. It's like we think that we have if to focus better. We think we need to focus on we need to train ourselves to focus. And I'm saying no to focus better. Train your mind to notice when you're not focused. Gosh, very good. So, you know, that's a totally different set of your you're exercising the floodlight and the, the juggler. The flashlight will do its thing. It knows how to do its thing. But really pay attention to the understanding of where your mind is moment by moment. I did that during your TED Talk. You actually say something similar during yeah. your TED Talk. Yeah. And then I thought, well, where am I now? Yeah. And then I'm back with you. And then exactly. where am I now? And then I came back with you. And that's it. You know, 24 mm. seconds. If you're truly going 24 seconds, you are... We got to bring you to the lab because that's really good. I made the number <laughs> up. It's probably more like 2.4 seconds. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but I, you know, I actually asked a colleague of mine who'd been practicing mindfulness for 30 years because I was getting in the initial stages when I was just trying to understand what this thing is. I was like, mm, I'm not going very long before my mind wanders. And will that be the thing that will extend as I practice more? That was my thinking. Like, that's a reasonable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I might if it's, you know, five seconds now, maybe it'll be 10 and 15 yeah. and each year. I might get longer before it wandering and I was very humbled by what he said. He said, 30 years of practice. He said, mm, seven seconds. No kidding. And, but you know, so at first I'm like, oh great, what am I been bothering? Like it's still gonna be seven seconds after 30 years. But what he said next really helped. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, what has happened is that my mind now, instead of being completely lost in a fantasy or a doomsday scenario, and I love that it was like almost poetic. He's like, it's like I'm seeing uh, the ripples 
you know, the ripples at the distance of the placid lake. Mm. And I was like, oh, mm. he is really knows his mind. Mm -hmm. Like he can tell a slight tug. He doesn't have to go full on into, you know, next vacation has been planned while you're trying to do five minutes of a mindfulness practice. Mm. That felt so much more like he knows his mind. He knows where it is that with that level of granularity. Yeah. And in some sense, this is the part that I think is also really interesting, especially as we talk about um, athletes mm. and military service members and you know, special operators, et cetera. It's this sense that you develop, because you know your mind, a sense of, I'm gonna use the term, mental toughness. Mm -hmm. It's like, I know the space, I know the, the lake. It may not always be placid, it's usually for me like a rough, <laughs> stormy yeah. place. Right. But I can take anything. Like my mind is here for it. And mm -hmm. frankly, that's developing that same flood-like capacity. I am here, I'm mm -hmm. present for it. I'm not going to be thrown off. I'm steady in the middle of whatever's going on. Very good. You know, I, uh, I think some of the most self-confident people I know are just more self-aware. And I think that's actually yeah. what you're describing. Yeah, there's an awareness I'm... of, there's an awareness of self. I'm loving this and I want to keep going. So I want to I ask you about, you've described things in visual terminology a lot. And I'd like to think that I am a visual person also, although I don't know that there's such a thing. I'm wondering if part of that self-awareness is, are some people more predisposed to be kinesthetic or auditory mm -hmm. or visual in their, um, in the deductions they make, in the observations that they make? Uh, and is that something to be cognizant of about yourself when you're in a state of attention? That you are not just, I, I, I feel like I'm very visual, but maybe every single person is, or are there more auditory, predisposed people, kinesthetic, yeah. visual? I mean, the, the, the jury is out. Most people say now that like the notion of learning styles or specific modalities is not all mm -hmm. that well supported. So I, th I would say, I don't, we don't know yet if that's mm -hmm. actually the case. But frankly, the bulk of the brain as human beings compared to our little dogs that run around, so dominant with vision. Visual, but yeah. you brought up something that I wanna actually, I wanna like kind of ping that. Because yeah. that what you described is not what I'm talking about when I use the term meta-awareness. What you just described, very powerful thing to do is something we call metacognition. So both of these are tied to self-awareness. Meta-awareness is a different thing. So metacognition is essentially knowing your tendencies, knowing your styles, knowing mm -hmm. your decision-making capacities, your strengths, your weaknesses. I mean, everything you just described would be really great to know for your metacognitive style, for example. Okay. And yes, it can definitely, there could be differences, maybe not tactile or, or visual, but there are definitely differences in the way people operate metacognitively. So you may be a maximizer in your decision-making versus a, a satisfier. You know, there's these different orientations. But I'm not talking about that. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about when I talk about the floodlight, because remember the floodlight system is really about the now. Mm -hmm. And meta-awareness is awareness of the moment-to-moment -moment processes and contents within your mind. So I don't, it doesn't really matter from, meta, from the meta-awareness point of view what your tendencies are. What is going on right now? Mm -hmm. Where is your mind right now? Mm -hmm. And I think that that um, what's important now kind of orientation is so important in performance context. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter what you're doing. I'm like, what's going on now? Is it bad to be oh. dreaming in the future? Is that a, it's a bad or good? I don't even like that terminology, but... Useful. Yeah, yeah. is it useful? Okay, Such better. a great question. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked me that because I don't want it to seem like I'm saying, always be here right now. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, this capacity to mentally time travel, to just like you did with your, what did you have for dinner last night, right? Mm -hmm is so useful for us. In fact, it may be the thing that defines us in our evolutionary advantage as human beings, okay. right? We can displace our, uh, ourselves in something called time travel, right? Mm -hmm. We can rewind the mind, we can fast forward the mind. You, you heard about me talking about that a little bit yep. in the TED talk, but it's not just about time traveling, it's also about mind traveling. Okay, what's so that mean? Mind traveling is essentially putting yourself in the shoes of, and mind of somebody else. Oh. So both of those are really, really powerful things to do. Mm. When we talk about mindfulness, it's really, it's a, it's a solution to a vulnerability in our capacity to do both of those things. Mm. So the problem with time travel, though it's extremely useful for productively reflecting or planning, it becomes problematic under certain states. And I do think of the athletes, like my heart goes go, go out to them oftentimes when I see mess ups, right? Like you did something, you totally yep. messed up and it, it happens, yep. you glitched. If you can't stop rewinding the mind, you are no way gonna be able to succeed in the next moment. Mm. So mm. 
how do you get yourself to not rewind? Very good. Right? So, or... Amisha, that's really good. Yeah, and I think that the other part is you may be in a not uh, necessarily the um, yep. athletic setting, but in our, like even during COVID, like if you, if you can't stop catastrophizing and worrying about the future... You got it. You're stuck. You're going to be probably have a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So the reason we want to, and, and frankly, the same thing goes with mind traveling. If I'm constantly preoccupied about your view of me, mm -hmm. social anxiety is going to set in. Mm -hmm. So the reason mindfulness became such an important solution for me, going back to why we study in my lab, is because each of those things, ruminating about the past, catastrophizing about the others, overly um, caring about the viewpoints of, of an evaluation on yourself, hijack attention it depletes attention gosh it's so good so you're describing from a scientific standpoint all the things that people listening to this go I'm like I, I know this is true yeah and i think this the rewinding thing man it's just huge so many people are in the rewind and just beating themselves up and repeating the same story over and over again but the other thing that i've figured out is that oftentimes stress is time travel in the future yep. meaning that yeah. it's not so much the uh the speech you have to give or the sale you have to close or the putt you have to hit that is stressing you out. It's you projecting into the future the negative result of it. And then on top of that, what other people are going to think or say about you when you miss the putt, when you don't close the sale. Exactly. Is that not true? Exactly. You describe both the mind travel and the time travel, right? Mm -hmm. That's those are the those are what I would really call the kryptonite scenarios. Like you're mm -hmm. really what all of that is doing is attention still being used and you're draining it out, you're draining the fuel in spinning in those directions. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, it's easy to say, well, don't do that, get back to here and now. It's easy to say it, it's very hard to do mm -hmm. because the tendencies are so strong. Mm -hmm. So you gotta train for it, just Good. like anything else that's hard to do. You were gonna give us one other, I think you were gonna oh, give yeah, us one right. other so one, let me give you the give other another one. training. It's and like then by mini... the way, let's get peak mind, let's get the book so that we <laughs> you also, get the, whole thing, you right. get the whole thing. That's the whole idea. But <laughs> one more of them would be, I'm driving in my car and I'm like, I want her to get me one well, more. Well, the car is a perfect example. You didn't even know I was gonna go there. Okay. This other practice is just called the stop practice. Okay. Literally, S-T-O-P. And do it while you're driving. Okay. Do it while you're walking. Do it at any time you want. Stop is stop. Like, whatever the progression of your life is in that moment, halt it. Take a breath, and that's this conscious breath, aware that you're doing it. Observe, O. Proceed. So it's just, it's a mini mindfulness practice. And I really think it's I useful it. because you know where your flashlight is at the end of it. Mm -hmm. I know it's right here, right now, I'm back. Mm -hmm. So use stop signs, use red lights to remind yourself to do that over and over again. So good. I'm just thinking of something. When you asked me to do that, I actually did it with yeah. you. And I actually noticed a couple things in my visual space that have been here the entire time that I didn't see. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, and exactly. I'm, we're going a little bit deeper probably than I should, but I. I <laughs> There's a lot of things that your brain does on habit mode, correct? Like if I'm driving to work and I take the same off ramp every single day, my, I think my brain is storing energy by doing something that's habitual. That's how I've always understood it anyways, that I'm hmm. taking that same off ramp. Whether I'm right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Okay. The point that I want to make about that is that for me, I think for most people, being present is, a, even though, yes, there's a benefit to being in the future and rewinding, there's a benefit to being reflective and reminiscing in the past and gaining wisdom from it. But for most of us, that's not a struggle for most people. The struggle for most people is being present. And that's why this is so important, what you're teaching here. And for me, there's so many things in a given day that mindfulness practices make me just aware of being present that I'm curious as to, in practical application, how much time a day, I know there's no formula, but if you were just saying, hey, Ed, I'd recommend to you, it's 10 minutes a day, it's five different times a day, it's once a day, do it at the same time of the day, doesn't matter when you do it. What would your advice be on just building this practice? As, so a, as the habit aspect? Yeah. Well, I mean, the last line of the, the, the title is invest 12 minutes a day. Yeah, so that gives you a sense yeah. of, and that number comes out of many studies that have mm -hmm. suggested you know, if you get to that mount, we tend to see benefits. And the more you do from that, the more you benefit. But mm -hmm. if you don't quite get to that, it's almost like, is, is going for a walk in my neighborhood, walking my dog, going to build my physical fitness? Probably not. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be bad for you, but you're not going to get to that level. Mm -hmm. So here's my answer to the question of, the, so the when would be, and you can get a deeper understanding of why I say 12 minutes if you read mm -hmm. more about it, but just know that it comes from a lot I of- I did, I just want them to- A lot of know, research, you know, no, I know, right, I know. But right. I'm just saying, but your question regarding when to do it and the habit issue is mm. 
the best time to do it is when you're going to do it. Okay. <laughs> and that's kind of a, mm -hmm. maybe a cop out, but literally the key to anything, and you'd probably say yeah. the same thing regarding physical excellence, mm -hmm. right? The key is advantaging your capacity to create it and incorporate it into daily routine. Yeah. And so what I suggest for people, like I just said with when we were doing the, the short practice, if you think you can do three minutes, set the goal of a minute and a half and get the win of I did it, okay. I did it, I did it. And yoke it to something that you already do. Hmm. You know, my recommendation is, is something that you know you're gonna do every day without exception, maybe right after you brush your teeth in the morning or hmm. maybe right before you have your cup of coffee, hmm. sometime that you know you're gonna do it. And what I would suggest just to play around with when that works for you, hmm is to try it at different times of the day. What, what many people say when we say, try the morning, you know, just play around with the time of day. It's like people say things like, I love the taste of my coffee so much more. It's like I actually taste it. Gosh, it's so true. I can't, you know, so, so true. and why are you depriving yourself of that, yeah. right? Why are we rushing through? I mean, you're gonna have the coffee anyway. Mm -hmm. Why not have a little bit more pleasure with that experience? So, I have to just say though, I, I was gonna tell you off camera, but I'm so glad you said this because I forgot, yeah. which is that I just wanna give everybody the gift of this that I, by the way, I'm nowhere near where you would be or other people. I don't think there's rankings either, by the way. <laughs> It's not a judgment thing, <laughs> but my sensory experiences, just in general, have been so dramatically increased by this practice. Mm. I, I, and uh, people always say to me that there's this duality, maybe one of the reasons they even like me is that maybe I'm sort of like a, maybe a masculine dude, but I'm very emotional and mm. very sensitive. I don't know that I've always been that way, but mm. like I do find that I experience my m emotions on a deeper level over the last decade or so that my laughter is a little deeper and more joyous. The taste of food is a little bit more pleasurable. My, my acknowledgement and noticing beauty around me and the nuances and specificities of it and not just the visual, but smells and wind hitting my face. I know this sounds ridiculous to some people. It's just richer yeah. because of this practice. Never mind being far more present, present and productive. And I think also for me, peak is such a word that I've used over and over. When I'm fully present, it appears to me that I've got better access to my vocabulary, better access to insights in reading somebody. Yeah. Do you, you, similar experience for you? I mean, for sure. And mm -hmm. it can be life-saving in many ways. And, and actually, you know, you, you described the, the plus side. And I want, I think it's so, it's so great. It's like, almost like, you mean I can just have more joy by being here more? Yeah, you can. But there's another part that I think is very important in the context of our action and our humanity. We're also more present to the suffering of other people. Mm. We're also more connected to other people. We also have more sense and respect for the humanity of others around us and for the environment. And mm. I think that at this particular point, kind of in our human history consciousness yeah. we need yeah. to be more aware of what is the heck is going on mm -hmm. we have very little time to like try to make things better for our planet for example and also with all the injustices happening and you know i was talking recently to somebody regarding this notion of burnout and uh you know so many people are feeling so burnt out can mindfulness help with burnout and the answer is yes mindfulness can help with burnout but you know and, and actually in the context of a conference i was at with um, critical care nurses now we know over covid that has been a group that has been very, very yeah. crunched, yeah. right? And the, the question was, can mindfulness help me with burnout? And I said, yes. And they said, but then um, the system that the organization of the scheduling is the reason I feel burnt out. And I was like, yes, but there's no way you're gonna demand change or even conceptualize how to create change create if you don't have the capacity to see what's going on. Yes. So just get, you know, use that as the next step to give back to those who may not have this capacity yet. It's like, mm. as the more present we are, the more we can enact change and empower other people to do the same. It's so, you're so right. And I, and I know you know you're right, but people have told me that the last 10 years or so, I'm just using practical experience yeah. for me. You're more patient than you used to be. That's sort of more like the, a symptom almost that it's, it is more what you have described, which is that I, um, I try to be present with people and see them and hear them and experience them more than fix them like I used to and and uh, try to truly empathize and and understand their experience and their reality and I, I've always felt since I started this like I wish more of I don't care what political party you're part of I wish more political people had that ability for empathy mm. and understanding and just stopped and listened to people mm -hmm. and didn't assess it all the time and I'm not exaggerating when I say that I, I attribute some if not most of that 
to these practices. Because yeah. obviously I'm a performer, peak performer, expert person supposedly, but it's the, it's the other benefits of doing this that have enriched my life far more than the fact that I've made more money because I'm more present with people or these other things. I'm actually curious about this. What about memory? So is it that my memory can be improved because of this, because I was actually present in more moments, so I have better recall because I, my attention was where I was more often? Or is it that there's something happening in my brain where I'm developing the ability to recall and remember things better? Pretty good question, huh? <laughs> yes. Yeah, right? So, I'm, I'm, uh, cause is it, cause you could say, well, yeah, your memory's better. Well, maybe that's just because I was more present or is there actually something operating in my brain where I'm, is there well, new myelin forming in my brain? I don't know. I'm just. Well, first of all, everything, this conversation is changing your brain. I mean, I don't just mean cause mm -hmm. it's some kind of massively transformative thing. Which every experience, mm -hmm. every experience we have impacts the way our brain functions. So, so there's no like, there's no divide between experience and brain changes. They're just happening concurrently, right? Okay. So yes, it is the case. So you, you're, you're such a great, you're such a great intuition about neuroscience. It's awesome. Thank you. So yes, it is the case that the more we can get, the more attentive we are, the more granular, fine-grained the inputs are for our memory. Mm. In fact, attention is the gateway for memory. If you don't pay attention, there's no way mm -hmm. that you're going to have the experience of encoding episodes in your life, gaining new information. Now, there are aspects of our memory that are outside the scope of something you need attention for after it's well-learned. So for example, um, if, I, if I tell you, tell me across the board of a keyboard what the letters are, I mean, I can tell you, but if you give me a keyboard, I can type it. So there's an, that's an example of something we call procedural memory, which is okay. you actually don't need your attention for that. But for episodes and knowledge, you need attention to input the information. You also need your attention to pull it out. So remember we were talking about the flashlight and your yes. dinner meal? You're, you had to, you have to have clarity of directing it to call up the right thing. Mm. So it is bo on both ends of that. And, and frankly, there's another thing to think about, which is that you call, what did you call it, myelin? So yes, it ends up that long-term memory is a structural change within the brain. It actually becomes like fixed hard mm. in terms of neural connections that occur. That process is helped by having clarity of mind and actually just kind of to really tie the loose ends of this conversation together, we current models suggest maybe that's where all this mind wandering is actually happening. It may be a memory encoding process. The reason the brain pumps out thoughts isn't because it's just trying to mess with us, mm -hmm. it's because that's the way episodic memory encoding happens. It's a replay button that just happens by default. And as it keeps replaying, things kind of harden into long-term memory. <laughs> oh, this is so good. All right. <laughs> First of all, I want everybody to get peak mind. I want them to get your book. The reason that I want them to get the book is because I think the application of what you're teaching is different for many different people. And I love things that have broad application. So I think if you're an athlete, you wanna read this book. I think if you're someone who wants to find a little bit more bliss in your life and be more present, I think this is a, a book that, that you should have. And I think just having an overall understanding of one's self is why I think this work is so fascinating. And it's why my audience knows I'm, I love every interview that I do. I don't talk to people that I don't want to share with the world, but there are certain topics that just fascinate mm. me because I like to understand why some of the things I teach work. I understand some of it. And um, you're helping me so much with that. Now, the last thing I want to ask you, by the way, I have like 83 more things that I want to <laughs> ask you, but I want to ask you about two things to, to finish. Which one big question, but one. Uh, what does pressure do? to our ability to pay attention? Mm. Does there an impact on it? Does it focus us, unfocus us? Does it depend on the person? How does pressure or mm. perceived pressure impact attention? Such a great question. Okay, Thank so you. yes, it is. it definitely has a relationship, but it has a lawful relationship. So pressure yeah. is not, it doesn't have a unitary effect on attention. So just think of a U and turn it upside down. Okay. <laughs> That's essentially the, shape of the curve. It's something called the Yerkes-Dodson function. And you've got, let's call it stress or pressure on the x-axis and performance on the y-axis. Okay. So pressure is low, performance is gonna be pretty low. Interesting. There will be a point at which the pressure will continue to grow where you're gonna be at your peak performance. Hmm. And if you continue to push yourself beyond that, you're gonna start ramping There's down. There's a regression. Again. 
Yep. Okay. So here's the interesting thing about that. So there is a sweet spot. The, and we know what that is for us often. It's like, Good oh, yeah, it. this, like, I'm going to be able to mm -hmm. knock it out of the park in this moment. I have the right set of factors. The problem, and a lot of people, especially in the elite context, don't really understand that. And, and in particular, people like first responders, special operators, et cetera, that, mm -hmm. that there are real consequences for mm -hmm. when you're on this part of the, the curve, it can be life or death for many people. Even if it feels like it's the right amount of pressure for peak performance at one moment in time, if you maintain that same level of pressure over weeks, months, it's going to degrade you. There's a, there's a regression. Okay. So it, it, it will push you into the right, into the degradation part of it. So I think that's also really important to know. Often people are like, but I'm used to this kind of demand. Mm. You're not used to it for weeks on end. Got it. You know, and frankly, that's what a lot of the medical staff are saying. They're like, I could perform, you know, even if the, it was a full ward, I can kind of manage it. You didn't have to do it for 19 months. Yeah. And so the, we, yeah. it, we have to have... This is actually, um, I would love to be able to just say this almost as a public service announcement. Sure. We have, as a culture, a lot of attentional hubris. We think we can pay attention, and we cannot. But if I ask you, do you think that um, the guy behind you that's on his cell phone trying to drive is, is paying attention to the road? You'd be like, no way. Mm. Well, then why do you think you are when you're doing the same thing? Very good. Right? So Very it's good. like, really remember that and have attentional humility. Understand mm. that. And also take care of your attention in that way. Like, you really check in. Like, even if I can focus at this level, am I still as focused as I was before? Yeah. That's the knowing it. That's, and that's not about, by the way, going back to, it's not metacognition anymore. It's meta-awareness. Yeah. What am I feeling right now? I get that distinction now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, I, by the way, Does I Does that answer your question? Yeah, it did. And I, I wanted to, I, I love the fact that, because I think some people try to avoid pressure or stress. What you're basically saying yeah. is there's an there's an internal benefit to a certain oh, yeah. degree yep. at, over a certain duration that focuses us too much the other way. It's kind of like you walk out on stage, there's a certain level of butterfly or desire or awareness or anxiety that's actually sort of healthy that you're in this peak state, so to speak, yeah, peak yeah. mind. And then there's a state where it becomes problematic, where it's too much. And I had a, had a few experiences recently where I just went a long time under duress and stress mm. and i found myself in a couple of the i'm filming a television show right now i just there was just a day where i was just not my i, I use vocabulary for some reason because i communicate so much yeah. just my struggle to pull you know adequate and articulate vocabulary out of myself was just really sputtering yeah and it was just basically what you said i was under that stress and duress for a duration that was longer than was beneficial to me and that's when i guess you've got to be able to be aware exactly. and intentional about it um, last thing, by the way, I love this conversation. I really do not want it to end. I'm just trying to be respectful to you <laughs> and my audience at some point because they're used to a certain length show because we really have not got into so many of the things that I want to. I'd love to have you back. Oh, uh, this would I'd be something that. we would do again. But just as a basic thing to start. So I want we've done, you've gone pretty complicated. We've gone in and out of different topics, but someone just listening, they said, look, I'm going to get peak mind. And I would like to be more present. I would, I, that's just to start. You've given me lots of practical things today. But if I ran into you in a coffee shop and it was Starbucks and we were sitting here having a cup of coffee and, you, and someone just said, where should I begin? Where should I begin? I'm at the end of the interview now, but where should I begin? Yeah. We're gonna leave everybody now. Right. And your final thing to them would be, this is where I would start, or this is what I would think about, or here's a strat, whatever, however you would answer yeah, that. That's, what, would you, what would you say that's to them? That's a great thing. I, mean, I think the one thing I'd want people to take away from this conversation and any insight to then promote taking action is pay attention to your attention. And I, and I really mean that. Mm -hmm. I mean, watch yourself in that way and, and do it, by the way, from a distance, which is going to sound a little bit weird. Like almost we call it, I mean, and it's called formally decentering, but like as a bird's eye view, get above it, like get above it and look at what's going on moment by moment. Oh, She's really feeling a lot of anxiety right now. Or, oh, and, and even name yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, Amishi actually is feeling really nervous right now, or Amishi feels a little bit sad. Part of the reason I'm saying to do that, and that is a way of paying attention to your attention, because you're like, oh, this is what's going on moment by moment. The reason to do that for, at a distance is because then you can't, remember what I said, you cannot have your attention in two places at once. Mm -hmm. By pulling yourself out, distancing the flashlight a little bit, you're gonna get more clarity of the, of the, the whole scene. Mm. And then you can take action. And that's just sort of like, just try that out in your daily yep. life. And then I would say really do read 
uh, what I have to say and the prescription I offer because I, I wrote this book really out of wanting to take it out of the lab. We found so many people had benefited mm. and I, I wanted it to be a benefit to a lot of people because frankly, it's not just soldiers, athletes, and medical yeah. people that have stress in their lives. All of us do. Mm. And it's not just them that have periods of time where there's enduring challenge. We all will at some point and we may not know where it comes. So mm. when it comes, so it's like train your attention like your life depends on it. Amisha, you're awesome. And I was just thinking, you know, the work from my audience is what you've just said. And, and here's the one thing, everybody, in this day and age, when there's so much information available to you, and then there's what I would call sort of new or more breakthrough information, like what you're sharing, your job is not just to, to digest the information. The work in our lives now is more not finding the information because there's brilliance in this book. It's the application for you. How are you going to apply it? In what areas do you apply it? For me, the applications of Peak Mind are in almost every single area of my existence. When I say almost, just because I think it is every area of my existence, it's a be making me a better friend, a better interviewer, a better speaker on stage, a better businessman, I think a better father, um, and just I'm happier as a result of it. And so I'm really happy you were here today and you came to my home to do this. So thank Aww, you so thank much. Thank you, this is a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, it was really good. <laughs> all right, everybody, please make sure you get Peak Mind. This is the fastest growing show. All the data shows this on the planet. That's because so many of you share it and it's getting all kinds of accolades and notoriety right now, as many of you know, simply because of all of you and the way that the show is spreading to people. I'm so grateful for it. I do this as a service to you because I believe we can make a difference in the world. And I think today's show proves that we can do that. So God bless you all. Max out, take care. This is The Ed Milet Show.